Well, good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 150. Psalm 150. It's the last psalm in the book of Psalms. This morning we're going to be continuing our series that we started last week called The Gathering. Uh, We want to look at what exactly the Bible has to say about what we do when we gather. What does the Bible have to say about what this gathering, our Sunday morning worship service, what is it supposed to look like? We looked last week at fellowship, that, that fellowship is kind of this overarching theme of what we do when we gather, that we are, we are to, to have relationships with, an, with one another, we're supposed to um, have, have uh, interactions with one another that go a little deeper than just a surface level conversation, and, and we're really supposed to pick one another's eyes up and, and point each other towards Jesus, encourage and uplift one another. We're supposed to have fellowship when we gather. This morning, we're going to look at uh, probably what has been uh, the most contentious uh, aspect of the Sunday morning worship service of the gathering for the past probably 50 years, and that's music. We're going to look at what exactly does the Bible have to say about music when we gather, the singing and the praise and the worship that takes place when we gather on Sunday mornings. Uh, Psalm 150. This morning, there's not one text that is a really good text that uh, is going to give us all of these answers, and so it's going to be a little more topical than I normally am. We're going to bounce around a little bit in, uh, in Scripture, uh, but we're going to start this morning in Psalm 150. The psalmist says this, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with the loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We lift up songs and and music and, and praise to you, Father, because you are worth it. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of of all of our worship this morning. God, I pray that you would show us what you want us to do when we gather. That you would give us a clear picture of what our music is supposed to be like, what the songs that we sing, how we're supposed to go about uh, having music in our gatherings. God, we, uh, we pray that you would sharpen us, you would shape us and mold us and encourage us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Now, more often than not, the, the questions that we ask around music ministry that, that have been asked throughout uh, the last 50 years or so, especially uh, and, uh, and contentiously, uh, the questions that we usually ask about music ministry have to do with the performance of the music. Right? More often than not, we are wanting to know uh, how do we do the thing that we do? Like, what kind of songs do we sing? Should we sing hymns? Or should we sing contemporary music, right? If you guys uh, know back in the 90s and then into the, the early 2000s, there was what, what was uh, kind of colloquially known of, as the worship wars, right? Churches across the country were shifting from this hymn-based music to uh, moving towards some, uh, some more contemporary Christian music. And, and churches were fighting over it. I mean, it was, a, it was a big deal. Like, how dare you bring drums in here, you know? Like, it, it was huge. So do we, but those are the questions we tend to ask. Do we sing hymns? Do we sing contemporary music? Uh, Do we bring drums in or do we play the organ, right? Uh, There was one church that I know of who, uh, who they got rid of their organ and it caused this huge uproar. 
right? People found out that they were getting rid of the organ, and people were just, they were fuming. There was this big uh, business meeting, town hall meeting, uh, and people were livid about getting rid of the organ. It didn't matter that nobody in that church played the organ, <laughs> right? And that hadn't been played in years. But, you know, you can't have real music ministry without an organ present, and so they were, uh, they were livid. We, we want to know, do you have to have an organ? Do you have to have drums and guitars? Like, like we were all the questions we asked had to do with the performance of the music. I, I saw uh, sat through a, a church business meeting one time where uh, they were talking about uh, moving from hymns to more contemporary music, and, uh, and, and someone stood up and, and they said, you know, hymns save us, and contemporary music is of the devil. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a bit of a stretch, but, you know, I think... Those are the questions we ask. Those are the fights that we pick. Is, is, the, is the production, the performance of the music, should we have the lights up? Should we have the lights down? Should we have flashing lights from the stage? Should we have a fog machine? Like we, we ask the questions that have to do with the performance of the music. But all of our conversations and our arguments about the performance of the music distract us from, from what's most important, like more important questions to ask. I mean, we, we spend all of our time fighting about the volume. Should it be loud? Should it be quiet? The, uh, a church that I used to uh, serve at had this one group of, of uh, older uh, church members who would sit on the side of the drum. And then if they saw a certain drummer in there that morning, they would all in protest get up and move to a separate section of the church because they thought this one drummer played too loud. You know, like, like we all argue about these different things, these questions, these performance based questions, but these questions distract us from probably a more important question that we should ask, which is why do we sing at all? Why do we sing when we gather? Because if you're not a Christian, this whole aspect of gathering together, putting a cover band on stage that sings your favorite Christian tunes, and all of us singing along with words on the screen like some strange karaoke, like that's a little weird. So why do, we, why do we do it? Like, why do we sing when we gather? Well, there's one thing I want you to take away from this morning. It's this. Our experience with God compels us to sing. Our encounter with the Creator, our experience with the Almighty God compels us to lift up praise and glory and honor to the Lord. Scripture gives us these two kind of guidelines, two guardrails uh, that, that teach us what our music should be like when we gather. And we kind of look at these two things and see, are we doing exactly what God has called us to do when we gather as it relates to our music? The first guardrail guideline is this. When we sing, we sing out of an overflow of emotions and truth. When we sing, we sing out of an overflow of emotion and truth. Look at me in Psalm 150. Psalmist says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness. And then he lists all of these instruments, praise him with the trumpet, with the lute, with the harp, with the tambourine, with dance, with strings, with pipe, with sounding cymbals, with loud clashing cymbals, like let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And what you'll notice in this psalm is a, a two-part pattern where you have God and who, what he's done and then you have our response. You have who God is and what he's done and how we respond to him. Uh, the Psalms were like the hymn book of ancient Israel. 
The Psalms were compiled and put together, all 150 of them, and they were, they were put together as a, a songbook, a hymn book for the ancient Israelites. And they would sing them periodically throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, um, uh, the worship services in the temple. They would sing through different psalms periodically. They would pray through different psalms periodically and teach through different psalms periodically. So this, this was the book of songs that the, the Israelites would lift up and, and praise to God. And Psalm 150 is instructing them on how to do this. Like, it's teaching them, do it. Like, lift up praise and song to God. Sing in all of these instruments. You have this two-part, who God is and what he's done. And then our response. If you notice who God is and what he's done in Psalm 150, you see in verse 2 this really vague notion. The psalmist is pretty vague, but he says in in, in verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds and praise him according to his excellent greatness. So there you have a picture of who God is and what he's done. He is excellently great. (laughs) He is is massive, he is powerful, he is holy. And then the vague idea there in in verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. He has done some great things. And then you have the response. And notice that the response is in very musical terms. The response to God, the the efforts to praise him is is in specifically musical terms. Praise him with this instrument and this instrument and this instrument. Like, bring out the stringed instruments and praise him with those. Bring out the wind instruments and praise him with, th- with those. Bring out the drums and praise him with those. He's, he's, he's proclaiming that we need to praise God with music. That our response to God, who he is and what he's done, is to, to lift up and sing praises to him. The vague idea in verse 2 of having his mighty deeds and according to his excellent greatness, is actually fleshed out a little bit more in Psalm 100. Flip back uh, a few chapters, just 50 of them, and go back to Psalm 100. Now keep in mind this pattern of, of who God is and what he's done, and then our response to him. Keep that in mind as we read Psalm 100. It says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Did you see the pattern again? The psalmist is writing about who God is and what he's done. And then he talks about our response to God, which is to enter his gates with thanksgiving, to come into his presence with singing. Again, the response to God, the praise, is in very musical terms. So what is it about God that compels us to sing? What is it that that God has done? What what is it in his character that, that leads us to lift up Song, like I don't, I don't just break out in song when someone does something nice for me on a normal uh, occasion, or like I don't just randomly sing to people. Like there's, there's, there, uh, there's nothing that has ever happened to me that has made me spontaneously break out in song. Like it's not a musical, normally in my life. And so, what is it about God that makes us want to break out in song and praise to Him in very musical terms, in very musical ideas? What is it that God has done? Well, the psalmist 
And Psalm 100 gives us a little more insight than the psalmist in Psalm 150. Instead of just a vague idea of him doing mighty deeds and, and being excellently great, the psalmist in Psalm 100 points out a few things. Number one, like God is the creator. He is God. And there's nobody else, there's nothing else on earth that compares to him. Comes anywhere close to him. Look at me in verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. God is the creator. And God made everything that we see. Every little detail in the world, everything we can feel, everything that we can uh, touch and, and smell and hear and see, everything that is in our world, all of it was made by God. All of it originated with him. He, he created every single thing in the world. And I look up at the sky, I see the expanse of the stars, and I recognize that God made every single one of them. He placed them in the sky. He put them exactly where they are. He made everything. And beyond that, he holds it all together. The Bible says that, that all things exist through him. All things owe their existence to God. And so he is holding everything together. The very fabric of reality, the very fabric of our universe is being held together by God. He is God. He made everything. He made us. We owe our existence to him. And there's nothing in the world that compares with him. And that alone is enough to praise him for. Just the fact that we owe our existence to God is enough to lift up praise and honor and glory. Just the fact that he made us should produce songs to God. He could have just made us and like a clock wound us up and let us go and, and retired to some uh, distant planet somewhere. Like God, God could have done that. And he still would have been worthy of honor and praise because he made us. He is God and there is no other like him. But he didn't do that. We don't serve a God who is distant and cold. We don't serve a God who is impersonal. We serve a God who is near. He decided to love us and to have a relationship with us. Look at me in verse 3. The psalmist says, We are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God is not some distant deity who, who set the world up and let it go. He decided to have a relationship with us. He decided to create a people for himself that he could pour out his joy and his peace and his love upon. He decided to make a people for himself that could experience what it's like to be in a relationship with God. So for God who is near and personal. That, that activity, that act of bringing together a people for himself started all the way back with ancient Israel. Again, the, these psalms are the, the hymn book of ancient Israel. So when it says we are his people, it's not really talking about us. What it's talking about is the, the Israelites, the ancient Israelites. They were the people of God, the people God had selected to be his people. He, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land and he, he set up his temple in their country and they were, they were to be his people. And he would pour out his love and his grace and his peace and his satisfaction upon them. And they would experience it for all of eternity. What they realized, though, 
pretty quickly is that God is perfect and holy. There is no blemish in him. He has never done anything wrong. He has never done anything bad. There's no hint of wickedness or evil in him. He is perfect and pure. And if you're going to be part of the people of God, if you're going to be in a relationship with God, you also have to be perfect and pure. There can be no blemish in you. There can be no mistakes or transgressions. There can be no sins. And there can be no rebellion against him. And what they realized pretty quickly in Israel is that they were not equipped to be the people of God. They could not be God's people. Because no matter how hard they tried to follow all of God's rules, no matter how hard they tried to earn his love and satisfaction, no matter how hard they tried to be perfect, they weren't. They were sinful, rebellious people. So time and again, God raised up people to conquer Israel, to drag away people, and then he would save Israel, and then he'd bring up people to conquer them again and drag them away, and then he'd save and raise up Israel. And then eventually, he exiled them from the land. He kicked them out when they were conquered by Babylon because they could not be his people. They were sinful and broken and rebellious and imperfect, so they could not be the people of God. And that, again, could have been the end of the story. God could have said, I tried. Like, I really tried to make myself a people. I really tried to get a people that I pour out my love and my joy and my peace upon. I I really tried, but they just are stubborn and sinful and rebellious and broken. And that's true of every single one of us, Ephesians Chapter 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are no better than the ancient Israelites. And it says in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature children of wrath. We are deserving of the wrath of God because we've all rebelled against God and sinned against him. We have all spurned his commands and his laws. We have all turned away from his command for us. We are all imperfect, broken people, and we deserve the wrath of of God because of it. We cannot be the people of God. God could have left us at that. He could have said, I made the world. I showed them my goodness. I fed them and clothed them. I tried to make for myself a people, but they are evil, wicked people who continually rebel against me, and I've had enough. That's not what God did. The psalmist says in Psalm 100 verse 5, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The love of God endures. God loved the world so much. He loved you so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross for you. Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, lived a perfect life, and he gave up his life to die a painful death on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was poured out on the ground so that by his death, you can be saved. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be made right in the eyes of God. He did it so that you could no longer be viewed by God as a sinner and a broken rebel, someone who constantly earns the wrath of God, but someone who instead now by the blood of Jesus is viewed as someone who is saved and set free by Jesus. 
someone who can be part of the people of God because of Jesus. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And he shows that by his power, he really can set us free from sin and death. He really can make us new creations. He can make us alive in Christ. And that same Jesus is coming back to restore the world to the way it's supposed to be, to do away with sin and death, and to gather his people together so they will experience an eternity in the kingdom of God. That's what God has done. That is the character of God, a God who is big and powerful and mighty and has made everything, a God who is good and righteous and holy and pure and has no hint of evil or wickedness within him, but a God who loves us enough to save us even though we rejected him. A God who loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross for us. To set us free from sin and death even when we, we, we spurned him and rejected him. That's why we sing. It is that character of God and that action of God. The gospel is what compels us to lift up praise and honor and glory to God when we're so filled up with the goodness of God and the glory of God and the gospel and what he's done for us. We can't help but overflow with emotion and truth and praise to the Lord. Our experience with God compels us to sing. The way the psalmist writes about it and talks about it, it's almost as if it's overflowing, that you just, you can't help but praise God. You can't help but sing because you have come to understand who God is and what he's done. You have caught a glimpse of the goodness and the love and the grace of God because of what he did for you on the cross. And that, that was just the beginning that's the greatest example of who God is. But God also provides for you. He, he heals you. He loves you and comforts you. God has done so many things in our midst, in our church, in our lives. that We've seen God move in mighty ways. And because of what we've experienced with God, because of what we know to be true, we can't help but pour out emotion and truth. We can't help but pour out praise to the Lord. We sing because of what he's done for us. We sing because we are so filled up that we can't help it. We sing because we are overflowing with emotion and a recognition of who God is, and it just has to come out. Notice, we sing with an overflow of, I said, both emotion and truth. The Psalms are very emotional uh, chapters in the Bible. There's a lot of emotion here in the book of Psalms. I mean, you can, you can read Psalm 100, you can read Psalm 150, and it's, it's the, the psalmist just jumping up and down, praise the Lord. Like you, can, you can feel the emotion coming off the, the, the page, enter his gates with thanksgiving, like raise joy to the Lord. There are other psalms where, where the psalmist is lamenting, where he, he is experiencing a really hard moment in his life and so he is he is singing a song of uh, a sad song to the lord he's just pouring out his heart to god but even in those laments they always end with this really high note the a a, a, a minor key ending on a major note because they 
the, the, the psalmist reflects on who God is and says, you know, I know because of who you are and what you've done that this pain is only temporary. And so even the minor songs end on a major note. The emotions just pour out on the page in the psalms. When we sing, our emotions should, should pour out from us because of who God is and what he's done. Like some of you this morning need permission to be expressive in church. Like you need permission to, to lift up praise and honor to the Lord in the fullness of emotion. Like your emotions should not be disengaged from worship. It is not a routine singing of a song or re- retelling of a truth. It is a full engagement of your emotions and praise to God. And some of us don't get emotional in worship. We don't, we, don't, we don't allow our emotions to come out because we haven't really fully experienced the love of God. Or we've allowed ourselves to grow cold to the fact that God saved us. And the truth of who God is and what he's done for us has become routine and regular instead of the, the joy-filled, joyous news of salvation that should produce overwhelming emotions of joy in the Lord. We should overflow with emotion, but, but there are also, there has to be truth in how our, our uh, emotions flow out. There are some worship songs today that, that say a lot of words but mean nothing. They, they use a lot of really emotional language, and, uh, but there, there is no actual truth, no meaning in it. It's just a bunch of jargon. So the things that we sing need to be emotional and, and, and engage us in the fullness of our emotions, but they should also be true about who God is and what he's done. Notice that the psalmist is praising God. He's entering his, thanks with the, his gates with thanksgiving. He's entering his courts with praise. He's giving thanks to him and blessing his name. The content of the songs is who God is and what he's done. The content of all of the psalms is, God, this is what I've experienced. This is what is going on in my life. And this is what's true of you. So when we sing, it is an overflow of emotion, but it's also a pouring out of truth that we have experienced, truth that we recognize, truth that we know. So the songs that we sing, the praise that we give to the Lord when we gather should be both fully engaging our emotions, but also fully engaging our mind as we proclaim the truths about who God is and what he's done for us. Think of a song like uh, some of the songs that we sang this morning. Like every song we sang this morning is an emotional song. Like there, you can pour out your heart in emotion with every song that we sang. But they're also all biblically accurate. They're all songs that are true about who God is and what he's done. They're proclaiming things that are true about God. When we sing, we sing out of an overflow of emotion and truth. The second guardrail or guideline of worship is this. When we sing, we sing both to God and to each other. We sing, we sing both to God and to each other. Flip with me in a, to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is, is talking to, uh, to a group of churches, Ephesus being one of them, uh, and he's telling them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like when you gather, make sure that, that the Holy Spirit is, is present and tangible and 
and, 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 and moving in an active and powerful way. And when, when that's true, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, Acts, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 19, this is what uh, Paul says. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, I always wonder, like, what makes our music on Sunday mornings different than other types of music? What makes this act of singing together different than other types of, of singing just a few days ago, I was at a, a Chris Stapleton concert. You know, Chris Stapleton's a country artist. And the, the, uh, the atmosphere is very similar to a church. What actually goes on is very similar to what happens on Sunday mornings. You have a guy on stage. He's playing music. A room full of people are all singing along because they know the song and love the song. And they're all pouring out the, the song uh, from their lips. And so it's a room full of people singing the songs that are put forth from the stage. In fact, there's uh, other similarities. I mean, the guy in front of us uh, had a little too much to drink, and so um, he was getting very expressive, and so I felt like I was in an old-time Baptist church because the people around him, people around him were like, no, we don't, we don't do that here. Like, sit down, be a little less expressive. And so I felt like, <laughs> like this old-time Baptist there. So really, it's a lot of similarities between what happens at a Chris Stapleton concert and what happens in church. So what's the difference? might think, well, it's just the music. Like, it's, he wasn't singing to God, we sing to God. Well, uh, I was, uh, this week I was also at a Phil Wickham concert. If you know Phil Wickham, he's an incredible Christian artist. We, actually, we sang one of his songs this morning. Um, incredible Christian artist. And so we're, in a, we're actually in a church, in a room full of people with a couple thousand uh, believers, and they're all uh, hearing a song from the stage, a guy on stage is, is singing the song, and, and we all know the songs, and we're familiar with them, and so we are singing along and lifting up these praise and, and honor to God. And so is there anything different for what happens at a Phil Wickham concert than what happens here on Sunday mornings? Is there, is there anything different at all? Ours is free. Well, ours is free, that's true. <laughs> we see the same thing. You know, maybe you're driving in your car, and you put on a worship song, and you just you start praising God. You know, maybe you lift your hand, don't close your eyes, but you're like, you're praising and worshiping God in the car. Is there anything different from that to this? For a lot of us, the way that we think about music ministry, there is nothing different from us singing a worship song and praise in the car and singing a worship song here on Sunday morning. There's nothing different because we get here on Sunday morning and it's our, uh, our thought process, our goal to just get in a bubble and tune everything out and lift up praise and glory to God. And that is definitely part of our praise and worship and our singing to the Lord, but it's not a complete picture. But it, it is part. Look with me at the second half of verse 19. Ephesians 5, verse 19, the second part says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the, there is an, there's a sense in which when we gather to sing, we are lifting up praise and glory and honor to Jesus. Where we are beholding the glory of God and we are just tuning things out and lifting up praise and honor to him. There is a sense in which that's true. Like God is the recipient of our worship and our praise. He's the one that we're directing it to. He's the one that we are lifting up and honoring. But that's not just the only thing that we do. 
Because there's something special about singing together in the church. We don't just sing to God, we also sing to other people. Look at me the first half of verse 19. Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So it's not just that we're lifting up praise to God. It's not just that we're singing about who he is and what he's done and having this really good one-on-one moment with Jesus. Like that, that is true. We are lifting up praise to God and we are having an encounter with the Lord. But beyond that and even greater than that is the fact that we are lifting up things that are true about God and reminding one another of those truths. That we are pouring out our spirit. We are emotionally connected to worship and we are lifting up truths about who God is and reminding the people around us of the things that we've seen and believe. That's what's different about worshiping and singing in a church as opposed to anywhere else. If I'm singing at a, 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 a Phil Wickham concert, it's the same songs and it's the same act of worshiping and praising the Lord, but I don't know anybody else. I don't know their stories. I don't know their, their life. I, I don't know their beliefs. And so I'm not encouraging them with my singing. I'm not lifting them up and benefiting them. All I'm doing is having this great moment with me and Jesus. When I'm in the car and I play a worship song and I start singing along to it, I'm not lifting anybody else up. I'm not encouraging anybody. I'm just having this really great moment with me and Jesus. But when we come to church, when we gather and we sing, it's not just a one-on-one relationship. It's not just singing to an audience of one. You have a lot of people listening in. And that's the point. Is that we are lifting up one another by the songs that we're singing. We are reminding each other of the gospel truths that we proclaim. Some of us don't sing because we, we feel like we have a bad voice and we don't want other people to hear us. But the reality is it doesn't matter what your voice sounds like. I, I may not like your voice either. But the reality is that I'm going to love hearing you proclaim these truths. Because I need to hear you proclaim them. There may be days when I, when I need to hear you lift up the Lord and remind me of who God is and what he's done. And when we have a room full of people whose, whose voices are joined together in one chorus, reverberating off the walls, the, the single voices get drowned out. And we have a room full of people who are praising the Lord and reminding one another, of who God is and what he's done. It is a joy to sit and worship, to sit and sing to the Lord, to look and, and to see candy on stage, praising God and being expressive about who God is. And that is a reminder to me about who God is and what he's done in her life. It's a joy to look over and to see Cherie praising God and lifting her hand and, and knowing that God has done a work and a mighty work in Cherie's life. It is a joy when we sing songs about healing and praise to know that I'm in the same room with Bobby who, who God has healed and done a mighty work in. And so I can sing and praise God, not just because of what I've experienced, but because of what we as a body have experienced. It's not just about what I've experienced, but the fact that all of us collectively have experiences with God, have, have truths that we know because of what God has done for us, and we can all lift up those praises to God together. It's a great encouragement and a joy to join with one another in worship. Imagine if you're having a bad week and you're doubting the, the goodness of God and, 
and whether he's worthy of worship. And then you gather with other believers, and there's a room full of people that are belting out, God, nothing is better than you. You turn grave into gardens. You bring beauty from ashes. Like, you're just singing these truths. And if you're having a bad week, and you're doubting those truths, you're being reminded by a room full of people that it's true, that he is good, that he's worthy of honor and praise. It's not just the fact that I am beholding the glory of God. It's that I'm reminding everybody else to also behold the glory of God. I am exposing the people around me to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We sing both to God and to each other. It's not a performance. And that we're trying to show off to one another or trying to, trying to look good for one another. We're not trying to, to move just for the sake of, of other people seeing us move or, or sing just for the sake of other people seeing us sing. We do those things because it's an overflow of our emotions and truth. And we lift those up to the Lord. But in so doing, we also sing and move and act to remind the people around us that the things that we're singing are true. And to help encourage them and lift up their eyes to the glory of God. The gospel and our encounters with God compel us to sing. And when we sing, we sing together. Some of you this morning are not expressive in worship. You don't, you don't sing in worship or you, you kind of stand there and this is, you sing because it's kind of what you're supposed to do. You're trying to fit in. Uh, but there's no real emotion there. And, and the reality is, it's that you do not know the love of God. Some of you have never experienced eternal life that comes from Jesus. Some of you have never experienced the salvation that Christ provides. And so you have no overflow of emotions and truth to pour out. You have no store of, of joy and life to pour from. This morning... What scripture is commanding you to do is not to sing, it's not to, to move, it's not to be more expressive. What scripture is calling you to do is to experience the joy that comes of knowing Jesus. It's calling you to enter into a relationship with God and to become a part of the people of God so that he will fill you up with joy that will then pour out from you in song. So this morning, in just a moment, we're going to sing. If that's you, if you need to enter into a relationship with God for the first time, if you need to place your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'll be right here. And as we sing, I, I want your joy in the Lord, I want your, the, the experience of the gospel to mobilize your feet. <laughs> I would love for you to come up here and to tell me that you want to come to know Jesus. I'd love to pray with you. Others of you need a reminder of just how great God is. You've allowed that truth to grow cold, and so worship is just this routine thing that you do every week because it's part of the service, but it's not an expression of the joy that is within you. And again, the command this morning for you is not to just start singing or to be more expressive. The command for you this morning is to learn and to know the love of God, to really, truly experience it and to be reminded of it so that you can't help but sing, so that you can't help but pour out your emotions before the Lord. 
So this morning, as I pray and as we sing, I, I invite you to pray that the Lord would give you a renewed understanding of his grace and his love, that you would have a, a, a renewed moment of, of glimpsing into the glory of God so that you can't help but praise God. And as we sing, pour out your emotions as you sing the truth of what it is that we're proclaiming. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to sing. That you give us an avenue to express all that you've done for us. I, I thank you that you've given us this, this outlet for our joy. God, I pray that you would so fill us up with joy and life that we can't help but go forth and sing. That, that it needs to find an escape. That we can't help but overflow with emotions knowing exactly who you are and what you've done. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who does not know you, if there's anybody here this morning who needs to enter a relationship with you and have a reason to sing, then Father, I pray this morning would be the morning that you set them free and save them. God, mobilize their feet. Give them a reason to praise you. We love you. We praise you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.